Well, welcome everyone, and let's turn to Psalm 136 as we start this brand new year. And uh, because you didn't do Luke chapter 1, so we're not going to do that one tonight. So let's just start with this psalm, and it is a dandy. It's this great give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Now, when you look at this psalm, I'm sure it's a familiar one to you. And, and there is a line in there that, that doesn't catch your eye at all. Is there a certain line in this psalm that catches your eye? For his love endures forever. I remember when I was a little kid and in, in the pastor would read this psalm, I would get the giggles because I had no idea of what that, how powerful for his love endures forever. And I thought, you know, he would say a line and then here comes that, for his love endures forever. And you kind of... You know, as a little kid, you don't really understand. And boy, am I glad that I grew up and realized that the psalmist put it in there 26 times for a reason. One psalm has that line in 26 times. And so he says, he starts this psalm, and I think you're going to see how personal this, this is. He says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his love endures forever. Now, let's just take that line, and I went to other versions, and I was fascinated with some, like the King James used the word mercy instead of love. Um, there was another version that used grace instead of love. There was another one that used kindness instead of love, and it got me thinking that these are all attributes of, of who God is and that these attributes that he uses on us will endure forever. So, you know, it's, we as humans have a tendency to look at that word love and we just automatically, you know, tap on some conditions. I'll love you, but I expect. And we know that God's love is with no conditions. In fact, if you also look at love with grace and mercy and kindness, you, you look at the word grace, that, that his grace endures forever. And grace is undeserved favor. It's, it's a word that you get, what, what we, we receive what we don't deserve. That's what grace means. We receive what we don't deserve. And what do we receive that we don't deserve? I mean, when you think of Genesis 3 and, and, and the fall of man, and I mean, they blew it. And, and there were consequences in that chapter. I mean, serious consequences. And yet, God already started the process of salvation and redeeming us and buying us back because his love endures forever. And he used grace, that undeserved favor. So grace means getting what we don't deserve. We receive salvation, redemption when we didn't deserve it. Or the word mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And, and that too, that's why the two go so hand in hand. And they're not the same. They're not the same. Mercy is not getting. What, what should we have had? Well, we should have, we should have had eternal death. We should have had no hope. We should have had no future with, with Jesus. We should have had all of that. But his mercy is 
not getting what we did deserve. We should have been separate from God. We should have, we should have had our home, our destination should have been eternal death. But instead, instead, he gave us grace. He gave us what we didn't deserve. So anyway, grace, mercy, kindness, and kindness too is not just being nice. I mean, we know we have a God that's very nice, but kindness is so much deeper than just being nice. Kindness is a selflessness. And just to think that he is the ultimate mentor of selflessness. And so to me right there helps me to understand that line for his love. And then to break it apart and think, oh, his grace, I can count on that forever. It will endure. His mercy will endure forever. His kindness, his selflessness, the way he looks at me, the way his love will endure forever. And, and I think this psalmist is, is just trying to get us, when was the last time you really thought about that? And then a repetition. He's going to say it 26 times. You know, like I said, when I was a child, I thought it was just kind of silly. And now I search and think, if the psalmist puts it in there 26 times, there must be something he wants us to remember, something very important. So give thanks to the Lord. The Lord, capital L, that means he is overall. He is in it all. He is through it all. Give thanks to him, for he is good. And... You know, when you do verse by verse, even word by word, you know, we will read this so quickly usually, but, you know, good, he's good. Yes, he's good, but sometimes when we think of the word good, it means that everything is, oh, how are you today? Oh, I'm good. We're basically saying everything is going my way. Things are smooth, you know, my my boat's not rocking, and, and things are just kind of just kind of smooth sailing. It's good. It's good. And yet, Paul teaches us in Romans 8, 28, that we can know without doubt, without question, we can know. When you get to know him so well, and the better you get to know him, you find that you can trust that. You, I can trust that in all things, he is working for my good. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be my definition of good. It might not even be something I, I like or even understand, but yet it's good because the rest of the verse says you can know that all things will turn out for good because, because you love God and you trust that he's got a plan and he's got a will and, he's, and he, his love endures forever and he wants to make sure that you know who he is and you know his promises and you know how to make him your number one priority that you can, that your life is changed. So, you know, as, as we, we go through this verse and we see good, what is, what is good mean? It means that when you're called according to his purpose, that means the next verse says your pur- his purpose is to turn you into the likeness of his son. Now, that's going to take some work if he's going to turn us into the likeness of his son. And the reason he's good is because that's his ultimate goal. But even though um, it's the, the results are good, 
to get there doesn't always look good. So we need an understanding of God's definitions of some of these words to be able to make sense of because if, if God is so good and your, your, your life is just in shambles or you're going through a real crisis right now, that's kind of a hard song to sing. It's easy to say when, when things are good in your way, but to know that, that part of knowing who God is is that he, he'll do what he has to do and comfort and happy are not in, is, is, is not his main concern. Making us comfortable and happy is not his ultimate destination for us. He wants us to become like Jesus. And so he will do whatever it takes in our lives. Then, then it starts making sense why we have valleys and we have mountain peaks, but then we go back to a valley and why we have these ups and downs because he's trying to teach us that he is good and he's, he's got a plan and his goal is to make us like Jesus. So give thanks to the Lord because he cares, because he, he wants to do this for us, because he wants to change us into the likeness of his son. Give thanks to him for that. The Lord of Lords wants to do that. And then he says again, give thanks to, give thanks to the God of God's. The first three verses, the psalmist kind of says, you can give thanks because he is who he is. He's the God of gods. And I know that we have a tendency to think, well, I know he's the one and only God. But it's a good thing to go kind of over this because in the course of summer, we get a little lax and and sometimes without even realizing it, we've kind of veered off course in our priorities. And we've even gotten to the position where we might even be starting to think, I can't possibly live without either that person or that, that thing. Or, and we kind of moved that priority from, he is God and I need nothing and no one but him, to, you know what, I can't live without and then we know that we have made someone or something a little G-God in our life. So he says he is the God of gods. And he is the Lord of lords. Give thanks. His love endures forever because in your life he is the Lord. Capital L. And he's the Lord of lords. And living in the kind of world we live in, and there's so many, there's so many leaders today that... And even from what we're experiencing this week, watching the, the death of the queen, you know, you just watch how some people, when they really don't know the capital L Lord in their life, how they have a tendency to look at, at people who have been brought to a high position and you almost think of them as a Lord. And so the psalmist says, give thanks because you have the ultimate Lord. He's, if you put all the earthly gods and all the earthly lords together, they don't even compare to our God and our Lord. And he has made that available to us, that we can have a relationship with him. And the psalmist said, give thanks, you've got it made. And then he moves on and says, to him who alone does great wonders. He does great wonders. 
And there's a phrase nowadays that, that people will say when they experience something that they can't explain in, in the world standards, or they'll say, oh, it was a God thing. And what they're meaning is that this circumstance or this experience happened and there's just no explanation why it happened the way it did other than that God intervened. The God of the impossible intervened and, and it was a God thing because no man could ever done that. There's no other way this could have happened. He's the God of wonder. He alone, he's the only one that can do that. But, okay, small wonders, but also, what's the largest wonder he's done in your life? Have you ever thought about it? I think that's what the psalmist says. He, he has done a wonder in your life. And that's salvation. He has, if you can see this life that, I mean, if you can look back and you can say, I, I was like this, and you can understand what Paul said, old things are gone and new things are coming. You can see that you're reacting differently to life and circumstances and that different than you did maybe a year or two ago. You know that he, you are being transformed into what? Into the likeness of Christ. You're allowing God to do what he said he wanted to do. And you can know that through all your experiences, he's working and making that a goal. So the most wonderful wonder in our life is that, that we have been bought back. And he is the only one that can do that. And, and the verse that pops into my mind is, you know, salvation is found in what? No, no other. There is no name under heaven, by which we can be saved, other than the name of Christ. He is the God of wonders. He, in him alone, he does wonders. Why? Because his love endures. His grace, his mercy, his kindness endures forever in your life and in mine. And then it says, who by his understanding... <clears throat> who by his understanding, I kind of took that as because he is who he is and he has a mind like he has and he, he's got the, the ability that he is because he is God, he is Lord and there's no one like him. Because of that, he is able to take out of nothing. And what does it say? By his understanding, he made the heavens. You know, it's hard for us to even fathom before creation, but he always was, and he always will be. And I don't think our human minds can ever wrap around that. But, but he decided when he was going to create man that he was going to give them a universe and a, and a world. His love endures forever. So because he is who he is, he's able to create out of nothing the heavens who spread out the earth upon the waters. He took that chaos and separated the earth from the waters because he loves us and he had a plan what he was going to do with the earth and what he was going to do with the water and who made the great lights. You know, who else would have thought about that? Who would, have, who would have thought, I mean, he, he loves us so much that he wanted to make sure that we had a day and we had a night. And so he made the great lights, he, the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night. 
And he will make one statement that psalmist makes a statement, but then he quickly puts in there. Why? Because his love endures forever. I mean, you can't help but feel cherished and know that God wants the best for us. The one who is Lord, the one who is God, the one who does wonders, the one who can save, the one who can create. And then in verse 10, he starts, the psalmist kind of takes us back and, and helps us go back to his story that we know so well. But I believe that there's a reason why he does that. He starts in verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. So, you know, if you're, if you're willing, then you read that statement and you think, well, what does this have to do with his love endures forever? Because we were once a hopeless mess. And when you look at the people of Israel, I mean, you look at their condition, 400 years in, in persecution, in oppression. And when it was God's perfect timing, we understand the story of Moses and we know about the children of Israel. We, we know that, that, it took, that it was the 10 plagues, but it was that ultimate 10th one. And why was it the ultimate 10th one that, that moved the people out? It's because that whole story of Moses and the plagues and the, the striking down of the firstborn and the blood over the doorposts, that was all for us to see that that was what Jesus was going to come to do for us. When you're living in sin, when you're living in hopelessness, because we are without a Savior, and because of the blood on the doorpost, because of the blood of a Savior. So then it says, and he brought Israel out from among them. Because his love endures forever. He, he brings us from that. He, he doesn't want us to stay stuck in that hopelessness. And so his love endures so that he brought Israel out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. His love endures forever to him who divided the Red Sea asunder. Again, he wants us to put ourselves in, in that position. And can you imagine with that million plus people, you know, now they've been released and, and they're on their way and things all look good. And then all of a sudden, here comes this impossible Red Sea. There's no way they can get around that. And then all of a sudden they start to hear the pounding of the horse hoofs in, in their ears and they know it's Pharaoh's army coming behind them. And they are sandwiched between two hopeless situations, two impossible situations. They are doomed. And yet, look, at, it says, and he brought Israel through the midst of it. Because his love endures forever. Swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea because his love endures forever. To him who led his people through the desert, his love endures forever. 
So how do you make this personal? I think like in verse 10 and 11, 12, you can see that as salvation. You can see what he did for us. And then when, then when you see how the Israelites had to face the impossible, when, when, they were, when they looked at things as so hopeless, how often don't we look at life and say, this is just... There's no light at the end of this tunnel. There's just hopelessness. This is impossible. And the psalmist says, remember, you serve the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the God of wonder. And he saved you. He was willing to use his blood to save you and so he is not going to let you down and life is life and sometimes we hit the wall and it does look pretty tough and he's saying remember remember you have a God who did that for Israel he will do it for you and he will keep leading you just like the Israelites and they they wandered in the desert and yet he led them through the desert and how often in life don't we kind of just get stuck in a desert? Sometimes I even think that what we've gone through in these last two and a half years, and you just, you just can see it and sense it, that people just kind of lost something. And now they're, they're just kind of stuck in the desert. They forgot how wonderful it is to come together and to sing and, and to open their Bibles together and to go to church and fellowship and worship together. So I think we can pretty much understand the psalmist is saying this is life sometimes. Circumstances, experiences can sometimes drive us into the desert, but know that it's kind of like he says, now remember those first three verses. Remember about his love for you, his grace for you, his mercy for you, his kindness for you, who he is. He can take you out of that desert, but you have to want it. To him who led his people through the desert, who struck down great kings, his love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. Israel faced enemies. I mean, big enemies. And, and then it even goes on, it says, it mentions two particular kings who, for some reason, the psalmist remembered these kings and this really looked like an impossible situation. When, when enemies like the Amorites, the, the Philistines, and then he uses this Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Ag, king of Bashan. His love endures forever. What did he do? He killed the mighty kings, even those two. Sometimes I think we, we read these verses and we forget, what is he trying to say to me? Sometimes vast armies are coming against us. And that's not literal, but it feels like a vast army is coming against us. 
think this psalmist is just really bringing life home to us and kind of making us see that how you're handling this. Because sometimes these vast armies, and a vast army can be a doctor's appointment. It can be a sudden loss. It can be a wayward child. It's in, it just, it almost paralyzes you with fear and panic. And, and he says, well, I particularly have learned from from Second Chronicles 20. I just think this is the best chapter that really explains vast armies that are coming against us. King Josmic, king of Judah, at the time, he's trying to lead this, this small kingdom of Judah. Israel, kingdom of Israel's already gone into captivity with Assyria. But this kingdom of Judah, there, there was not many good kings in the kingdom of Judah, but Jehoshaphat was one of the few. And when he was told, it says, when he was told that the vast armies were coming against him, the very next word was alarmed. So, yeah, you are going to feel alarmed when, when something happens that you weren't expecting or when you hear these certain words that this was not part of my plan, the way I've got things figured out. And so you, you, hear, you hear these words and, and the vast army seems to just kind of overpower you. And yeah, it takes your breath away. And I think that alarmed, I'm glad that, that whoever wrote Second Chronicles, that they said the truth and they said that, yeah, Joss, but he's human. So he was alarmed. I think he did gasp and like, now you've got a split second to decide, okay, what? am I going to do with this? It's not going to go away. So what am I going to do with this? He hits his knees. He brings the people together. And there's the most extraordinary prayer. That's why I said, even if you have to put Second Chronicles 20 in a little sideline in this psalm so that you know that when the desert hits, when the vast armies hit, you know what to do and how to do it and to watch God work. And what does he promise? You know, Paul says it, I think, so good when, when he writes the, the verse that we know so well. We can know. We can know that all things are going to turn out to good for good. I just can't reiterate that verse enough. That is God's whole purpose. So we have to go through these things. And then what does he promise? That it will eventually be the way he intended. And that's good. If he turned us more into the likeness of Christ, that's good. If this circumstance that did not look good at the time, if it got us to the point of becoming a little bit more like Jesus, that's good. And then it is that promise we can hold on to. And then look at here. It says in verse 22, an inheritance to his servant Israel. He took the land from the enemies and gave it to the Israelites. So I'm sure at the time when the vast armies were coming against them, they didn't think about how it was going to turn out that 
this promised land was going to be theirs because it sure didn't look like it at the time. But God does what he says. And the psalmist is saying, remember that. His love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness is going to be endured forever. And then he goes to the one who remembered us in our lowest state. To the one who remembered us in our lowest state. Sure, it could mean that, yes, sometimes life just kind of puts us in a, a low place. Kind of feeling low today. Kind of feeling down today. But I think he, this verse, he remembered the one, the only one who remembered me in my low estate. And what is our lowest and that is when we're without Jesus. When Before we came to the cross of Christ, and I'm thinking sometimes it looks like that we've got the world by the tail and everything is going according to our definition of good. And, and you know, I'm far from my lowest state. I think Paul often thought that, that you know, he was prominent in, in the Sanhedrin and he was, he was, intelligent and he was respected and he had arrived to where his goal was and yet he didn't even realize that he was in a low estate but because God's love for him endured forever put him down to the ground and Jesus himself came to him put him in a room, blinded his eyes for three days, where he had no one or nothing to think about but his condition. And all of a sudden, reality set in, and he thought, you know, I'm not so smart after all. Our lowest state is when we are without Christ. And the one, the one remembered that and made a way for us because his love endures forever. And he freed us from our enemies. Freed us from our enemies. You know that phrase, freedom in Christ. That came to my mind when I saw, oh, and he frees us from our enemies. And what can be your worst enemy? Who can be our worst enemy? I mean, I know it really hurts when, when you know someone doesn't care for you and, and you know, someone you know, might have been nasty or even mean or, you know, maybe stabbed you in the back and you heard about it. And, you know, all those things. And, yeah, it's, it's very, it's terrible. But I was reminded of, of what Jesus said. Oh, it's so easy to love people who love the way you do and love you. And, but what does Jesus say? But I'm going to tell you something different. I'm going to tell you to love your enemies. And that is a tough pill to swallow. Because humanly, the first thing we either do is defend ourselves or we put up the dukes. And he says, I want you to love your enemies. And how, how do you love your enemy? It's with that unconditional, the kind of love that, that Jesus had for you and I, while we were yet sinners, Christ was willing to die for us. Oh, that is the ultimate start of his love endures forever. 
And he says, now I want that for you, to be able to be freed from your enemies, to not carry that grudge, not carry that unforgiving spirit. I want you to be set free of that because you see an unforgiving spirit, that grudge, you think that they deserve that, but believe it or not, believe it or not, you are the one that is carrying it and carrying the weight of it all. And he says, I want to free you from your enemies. But I even thought a little bit deeper than that. I thought, I know in my own life, the, my worst enemy is me. Sometimes we are our worst enemy. Now, you know, you say, well, you know, my, my enemy is, is the devil himself. Well, that's true. And he frees us from the devil because with the Holy Spirit, who is greater than the one who lives in the world, yeah, since we are even free from the devil, if we are willing to activate God's spirit rather than succumb to the, the way the devil sneaky really works. And he knows how to appease to our flesh, which we are so gullible to. And so, yeah, it even means the devil because it, it, the Holy Spirit kind of empowers us to resist that temptation, to be able to say no to what would be a disaster that would, would have severe consequences because of that greater power that is within us. He's freed us from having, we have a choice now. We can either say no to the devil or, or we feel weak and we just flow right with him, but we don't have to because all we have to do is activate that power source and he can free us from our enemy. But kind of back to ourself. I'm my worst enemy. I know, I know, and I'm just gonna use this as an example. That, you know, as a child and growing up and in, in, uh, in singing and everything, you know, I unfortunately developed a condition that, that I had to perform good. I had, it was, it was by how I performed or what I did or that was going to determine my worth. That's what was really going to determine whether someone liked me or accepted me or whatever. And and I never considered myself too smart because after all, you know, I just graduated from high school, took a couple courses in college, just didn't do it. And then to be able to be called into something of a ministry like this and, and hearing people say, oh, what college did you go to? What seminary did you go to? And I mean, I was even tempted to lie because I was so embarrassed, because I was so sure, because I believed the lie that apparently I'm not going to be worthy to listen to or, or to trust more than anything, because you really don't know what you're talking about. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like a bondage to me. I couldn't even, I couldn't even face people. If I knew that they had intelligence up the wazoo, I mean, I, I just backed away and put my head down. If I knew that they had extreme position and wealth and all that, oh, oh I just back away and put my head down. 
And I remember yesterday morning when I was praying, all of a sudden it just flowed on my lips when the psalmist is telling us, what are you, what are you giving thanks to him for? And I thought, in the last years, he has freed me from me. He's freed me from that, that terrible weight of trying to measure up through worldly standards. He's freed me to the point that I, when I was praying, I thought, thank you, Lord, that I don't have to put my head down to anybody anymore. Not because I'm so good, but because you are. And because you are so good and you live inside of me, and because I am your child, my worth is based on what you think of me. Now, I know this, this, might, this example might just be so silly to you, but it was big to me. And to be set free of that, to be able to, I can, I can go to anybody. I don't care how highly educated. I always say, I even dare say, put someone who graduated from seminary in the same room. I dare, I dare. Why, because I'm so smart now? No, but because I so believe in, in the Holy Spirit and God's word, and I'm so sure of that. I'm so sure of understanding the truth. I might not know everything, but I know what's important. I know what saves. I know who delivers. I know who provides. And he freed me from thinking that I don't measure up. I'm his child, and you are his child. You've been to the cross of Christ. You have opened your heart. Remember how I say all the time that your salvation day was started as the worst day of your life? It ended up the greatest, of course, but it starts the worst because all of a sudden you're confronted with all the yuck of who you are without Christ, without a Savior. And then to see, even visualize, as you're taking that humble walk to the cross, to visualize him with his open arms standing there, taking you just as you are. And say, this is what I came to earth to do to save you. So that you can know and be set free of all the world's standards. It's a great freedom. And he freed us from our enemies because his love endures forever. And who gives food to every creature. I mean, sure, yeah, thank, thanks, Lord, that I got a freezer that's full and that I got a pantry that's full. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. And it's so easy to look at that and say, yep, and he gives food to every creature. Why? Because he's going to provide that. He's going to provide. But I think even deeper is that he wants you and I to know that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the fact that you came tonight and you want to get back into that structure of keeping your Bibles open and, and reading that chapter every day and doing those 10 questions because you want to know that chapter. You want to be in God's word. I, I guarantee you, he's smiling. 
because he sees the desire in your heart to want to know him better. And this is spiritual food that will, that will not only energize us, but it will grow us and mature us and transform us. And it says he gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. He wants the best for us. So now we end the psalm pretty much the way it started. The, the psalmist started with give thanks. Give thanks because he is who he is. When was the last time you really thought about that? And you sing a song like how great thou art. I mean, it stirs your soul every time you sing it. Why? Because it depicts him so well. Starting with creation and then salvation and then the future. And that stirs our soul. And so that's why I give thanks for that truth. But then between those first few verses and the last verse, I think he really, he, he told the story of Moses and the children of Israel and what they went through and, and the vast armies that came against him and, and that he does turn all things out for good. He, he says, Where, did you see yourself in there? Did you see you? Did you see that that's exactly what Jesus came to do for you? And that everything in life that you are walking through, he's there. I still say, put a bookmark in Isaiah 43, because in that, in that chapter, it's just such a reminder that when you really don't know where to go, your Bible will open to these verses where Isaiah wrote what the Lord said, tell him, tell him that I... I've created them. I have formed them. No one knows them better than me because I created them and formed them. Formed them. I've summoned them by name. They're mine. When they go through the water, to me that's kind of a, like a, 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 maybe not such a hard trial, but when you're going through a trial, um, I'm there. And then he goes, and then when you go through the rivers, and I look at that as, well, that's getting, a, that's getting a little harder. And then we can kind of fill in, you know, he puts it in a general picture form like that. But we could put our, our, our life and our crisis and our experience right in there. And then he says, and when you go through the fire, you go through the fire. And I looked at that one as... I'm not going to come out of this one. And then he says, I'll be there. And sometimes you just need to be reminded that that's what I think the psalmist did in Psalm 136. And so he says, after you've gone through all this and you've seen yourself, give thanks to him. Because what a privilege. What a, I mean, sometimes there's just no words when you think of what our condition would have been. He says, give thanks to the God of heaven because his love, and he has proven it, his love endures forever. No wonder the psalmist put it in there 26 times. Because he makes us see 
that it's his love, it's his grace, it's his mercy, it's his kindness that is never ending and is with us every step. So in just in the last couple minutes, just turn to Luke chapter 1. Just go in there and see what Luke how he starts his gospel. And, you know, I'm sure many of you know who Luke is, but let me just, you know, sometimes I forget who Luke is because I, I kind of lump the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I just kind of think that they're, you know, um, Mark and Luke are part of the 12 too, but they weren't. Now, now we know John was a Jew and he did live at the time of Jesus. And so, you know, he, he wrote a very special gospel. But, but Luke, he's totally different. And he is a Gentile. He did not live at that time. He did not live in Jerusalem or Galilee. And yet he wrote this gospel all about Jesus. Look at what he says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. To me, that was my clue saying, I admit, I wasn't there. So then he goes on to say, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything, carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke is a Gentile. He is consumed with wanting to know the truth and details. Why? Because he's a, he is a very smart, brilliant medical doctor. So why, what happened? And we really don't know exactly. We know that he must rub elbows with hierarchy because he, he's writing this gospel just as a letter to Theophilus, he, he must care about Theophilus so much. He's most excellent Theophilus. So what changed Luke so much that he wanted to bring it to Theophilus? I'll tell you, this is one, one thing that I think about now and then. I think, oh man, I can't wait to meet Luke. Because I can't wait to ask him I can't wait to ask him all about, you know, who did you talk to? What happened? Um, but from what we read in Paul's letters, we can imagine something happened, and I think it was with Paul, because we know that, that he, writes, he writes Acts. And, and when he wrote Acts, he, he uses the plural. Like, when we went here. So we know that he was on some of the journeys with the Apostle Paul. So I think Paul had something to do with his salvation. Paul.
Paul also lists him in, the, in his greeting in Colossians. So they, they definitely have a, a great relationship. But how did, it, how did it happen? And that we don't know. And it, it will, I think it will be exciting to actually hear all those details. But if you could, well, just bear with me. I'm just going to tell you the way, where my mind went. Because I love to picture those two meeting one day. And I believe that, that um, because they were so much alike, I think Paul understood. I mean, he's, he's a very um, ups, yeah, upstated man. He's, he's a very intellectual, brilliant medical doctor who craves details, who wants to know. And I think Paul's thinking, that reminds me of me. And I think, though, that Paul, because he really understood his love endures forever, I think Paul understood his mission. And it could be that he needed a doctor. Maybe Paul needed a doctor. And it happened to be that Luke was the doctor for Paul. However, the Lord got those two together. But I think those two just understood each other. I think Paul was just the perfect one to be able to say to someone who was very similar. Paul said, boy, do I have a story for you. I thought it was pretty smart too. And, and Paul was. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being in, intelligent and being a medical doctor or Paul being a, a religious, very much head of the Jewish church. And there was nothing wrong with that except that they were both in low estates. They, they didn't know Jesus. And now Paul is going to be able to say to Luke, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you that you think everything is fine, but without a Savior, without Jesus, and however Paul related the gospel to Luke, it clicked. And something happened to Luke that he knew he would never be the same and being the kind of man he was, I want to know more about this. I, I've heard it. This is a typical medical doctor for you. He would say, now, you're, you, I got, do I have this right, Paul? Um, he left heaven, and, and the Holy Spirit did something to that woman, and now she's expecting this child. I mean, can't you... Just picture this medical doctor. I mean, it doesn't work like that. And, and then he's thinking, I know he left heaven, so that means he's 100% God, but, but then he was born through a birth canal. I mean, he, was, he went through all that. Now, obviously, he was a baby and grew, and so he's 100% man. Now, a medical doctor is going to be intrigued with that. And I think because he was such a detailed person, he said, I'm going to go find out. And so that's what he said. I investigated. He went back to the sources. And we don't know all his sources. But, but from what most people think, and I am one of them, the way he writes the birth of Jesus, the way he writes about the intricate details, you know he went, if you want to know about how Jesus came to this earth, who would you go to? I would say someone whose name was Mary. 
that Mary would be able to tell him how this, how this all transpired. She says, and oh, at just the right time, he's, he sent me away because it was so hard. I'm not married and I'm pregnant. And, and so he, he sent me away to be, to be with a couple that I trust and love and going through a similar miracle. And See, now who's going to tell him about that experience with Elizabeth and Zechariah? Who's going to know that there were things that couldn't be shared, so she pondered them? Who's going to be able to tell him that? Only the one who experienced it. And the reason I tell you that is because now when you go into, when you go into this study, you can almost catch his excitement. You catch, you catch the fact that he wants to know. He knows what salvation has done for him. And so he wants to know. And I think his enthusiasm, his desire is catchy. Paul is so sure. That's why he's writing to the excellent Theophilus. He's so sure that the cross of Christ, anybody can come, Jew, Gentile, because he had to go to the eyewitnesses, though they were Jews. And yet he knows that salvation was his, too. And so he wants, because he's so sure, he wants to reassure us that what you hear about the cross is right. Anybody can come. He's standing there waiting with his arms open and taking you just as you are. I think... Paul, I think Luke is, is so sure because of what's happened to his life. That's why he makes the gospel so crystal clear. I think he was standing there one time listening to Peter. and That's why I think Acts 4.12, he wrote this. I think he heard Peter, you know, probably heard that Peter was, you know, the outspoken and, you know, got his foot stuck in his mouth so many times and, and, you know, denied Christ and yet he was reinstated. I'm sure he heard all that story. He probably heard how the Holy Spirit came and, and just transformed Peter and now all of a sudden he stands up there boldly in front of thousands of people and dares to say salvation is found in none other. I, I can just picture Luke... Listening to Peter say that, he gets his pad and pencil out. And he's, can't forget that one. That's a good one. So when he writes Acts, he makes sure that that's right there. He wants to make sure Theophilus and us. See, this is what I can't wait to ask Luke. Luke, when you wrote to Theophilus, did you have any idea that a group of people would be in the legacy room at Central Wesley Church on, se on September 13 at 6.15 at night and be studying your words that you wrote through the power of God's Spirit. I'm sure he had no idea. He just wanted Theophilus to know and experience what he did. And that's what I think I'm, that he, in this gospel, he just wants you to sense. So I think the Psalm 130, 136 in this start goes so together. Give thanks for what he's done. 
It's a day to feel the joy of the Lord, not down and defeated and discouraged and hopeless. I think, I think Luke also knew because um, when you think about it, they were under Roman rule and the Jews have experienced horrible things under Roman rule, but so did at the time of Paul. And I think Luke wants us to see that there isn't an earthly power that's going to stand. And then I thought, oh, am I ever glad we're doing Luke after we studied Daniel? That's why you, you can't, even though we studied Luke 11 years ago, I mean, it's a new day. We're in different places spiritually. We've had so many things happen to us. So now I'm thinking, look at when Daniel, when Daniel interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar, his dream. Remember how, how there was this big statue and it was divided into four divisions and, and Daniel said, to, he dared to be Daniel, and he dared to say to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, you are the first world power. You are Babylon. You are, you control the world. And people even looked, and Nebuchadnezzar himself even looked at himself as a god. But we know that after 66 years, Babylon went down. And then the next part of the statue, Daniel says, and then there's the Medes and the Persians. They're going to come in and they're going to take over the world and they're going to rule it. And for 208 years, it's going to look like they are the controller of all things. But that empire went down. And then the Greek empire, the third section, the Greek empire came and after 105 years, the Greek Empire fell. And then the Roman Empire, and even though it lasted 500 years, it went down. So reassuring to us. And then, then Daniel goes on, and we studied how, but there will be a rise of a kingdom that will never fail. And to think you and I are part of that kingdom that will never fail. And Luke is going to make sure that we know that sometimes living in our state of the world, sometimes you can't help but your human nature wants to panic or fear or feel such a doom and gloom and a hopelessness. And Luke is going to remind us there isn't an earthly power that's going to last. It might for years, but we know, we can know, like Paul said, no doubt, you can know these things, and it is a powerful way to live. So I Heavenly Father, I just can't give thanks to you enough for being the Lord of all lords, to be, in, to be the God of all gods, to perform wonders in our life, not only the salvation transformation of our heart, but then to watch the Holy Spirit slowly but surely turn us into the likeness of Jesus himself. Father, we need to deserve that. So we give thanks today for giving us what we didn't deserve and not giving us what we did deserve 
And Father, you reassure us that life is life and there's going to be deserts and there's going to be vast armies and things are going to look like we're sandwiched between impossibilities. But Father, we give thanks to you because you have summoned us by name and you know us so well and you are determined to get us to a place where we are 100% sold on the fact that you are God and there is none other and that your word does not change, even though culture does. We can feel the stability and the calm knowing that we rest in the outstretched arms of a God whose love endures forever. Oh, we give thanks to you tonight. And we can't wait to see what you're going to do with the gospel of Luke through this excited man who was so in love with his Savior, who was willing to sit down and investigate and, and make sure that it was the truth, that, that we could be assured that when we go to God's word, when we accept this gospel, we know that the cross did work. So, Lord, you make sure that we get the proper food. And that proper food is this book. And we know that's part of the love that you have that will endure forever. Lord, as we listen to this last song, Father, may we just concentrate on what your goodness, even though sometimes in our life it doesn't look like you're too good, Oh, but you are, because you are molding us and transforming us. You know exactly what you're doing. Father, may we know that it's all because of the goodness, the love, the grace, the mercy, the kindness that you have for your children. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.